Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anytime. Anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I am Tim here today in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown with Lance. What's up, Lance? What's going on, Tim? How are you today? I'm wonderful. We are uh, putting out this uh, really interesting interview with Aaron Deborah Larkin, who is known as Gorilla Ontologist on Twitter and on her blog. And she was on this podcast back in November of 2016 episode 33 called Gorilla Ontology. And she has always been somebody who's contributed to the case in a really detailed fashion. I think that's what uh, drew us to her was that she had a um, a significant amount of uh, detail and and focus on um, on things like the uh, the call logs, the police transcripts, and her research was was substantial. And she actually has a personal relationship to the case, really. She went to UMass and knew Maura. She was on the track team with Maura Murray. Kate Markopoulos was Aaron's mentor on the track team. Uh, so so Aaron knew Kate Markopoulos pretty well and kind of knew of Maura, but didn't really know her, as she says uh, in her previous interview, episode 33. But before we play that interview, we just want to mention a couple of quick notes. One is... Something that a lot of people mentioned to us after they heard the episode with Mike and Sarah, episode 67 of this podcast, Inside the A-Frame. A lot of people emailed or messaged or uh, commented somewhere online, did they just say backpack? Did they find a backpack? And and they commented that, that we didn't uh, speak up and ask them more about that because obviously Maura had a backpack uh, when she went missing. So we followed up with Mike and Sarah about this. But when they found that backpack and the other debris and garbage in their yard, they did not know about the Maura Murray case. And so they tossed away all that debris as any normal person would. It sounds so frustrating now when you hear about it because, it, you know, it, it, what are the odds, right? What are the odds it is 
Oh, well, let's not play the odds game. Right, exactly. <laughs> that that was actually my point, was that you can sit there and you can wrap your head around and, and just go in circles for hours, for days. Um, the the like harsh reality is that there's probably numerous things that uh, were you know part of the case, part of the disappearance, like a backpack or like a, a, a cell phone that might have been found during that time by somebody who had no idea what they were looking at and they just passed over it or they you know cleaning out a house like that, which has a ton of other garbage. It just it just goes. Just they they purge the house and it just goes with it. So while it's frustrating, it's still reassuring. Uh, on on some weird level, I guess, to know that they that they still have a mental catalog of things that they've found anyway. That is true, and and please don't uh, don't blame Mike and Sarah for that. Obviously, they right. didn't know about the case. How what are you supposed to do? The other thing we wanted to mention here before playing the Aaron Deborah Larkin interview is an apology that we wanted to make to the Murray family, and we wrote it out on our website www.moramurraydoc.com. And it basically just uh, just says how we're kind of embarrassed how we uh, jumped into this case and uh, this podcast and, and named this podcast Missing Maura Murray without even consulting the Murray family and how odd that is now to, to look back as we're, you know, so far along in this podcast, you, you know, hip deep in year number three here of the podcast. We're not going anywhere and we don't have this a great relationship with Mr. Murray and it's just kind of sad and kind of weird and i want to be clear that the 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 statement that we put together wasn't influenced by any outside occurrence it wasn't like something happened and and you and i said we need to do this in order to uh leverage for something else to happen this is something that that we actually uh spoke with uh julie about and we collectively came up with this. This just needs to happen. It should happen. And we we realized, you know, let's start off 2018 with with a, a a statement to the family, to Fred. I know in the past we have lightheartedly said some of the early episodes are cringeworthy, and I can't believe that we would say something like that or even have those thoughts. But that's where we were at. And if it meant not being here with the progress that the case has made has you know all of the all of the new developments that have happened if it meant you know not being here if we could take that away we're just going to have to live with that because we're here because of that and it's not a choice we have it happened and we had to have that happen in order to get here i also wanted to talk about real quick about uh this moment that happened during filming the uh the texas crew show on oxygen and it was last february february 2017 we were up at the tree ceremony the vigil when uh they they redid the murrays redid the blue ribbon and uh we had a few moments there by the tree and there was like 20 of us and then the camera crews and things like that and and fred fred was was talking out there and i thought we should say hi to him like it meet the guy we had never met him that was the only the first time we'd ever been in his presence so i went up to him and said hi i'm i'm tim just wanted to say i'm sorry and we're here to help and you followed not far behind and it got a little more awkward so cut to my my uh point of view of this uh this this moment and i'm really glad that we're talking about this because as you know this has really it it's it's sort of eaten me up that this even happened and a moment could be so misread. When we arrived there at the tree and Texas crew was there, 
we received word that, you know, Fred was with them and Fred was very reluctant to meet us. And, you know, maybe we should just stay on the uh, on the peripheral of the uh, circle around the, uh, the group and the tree. And so it was freezing and snowing. And I remember just being like all just all tense. Right. Like shivering and tense. And and Fred, Fred, you know, speaks to everybody. We're getting ready to wrap up. And I, you, you said something like, well, you know, I got to go pay my respects. I, I got to go. I, I couldn't gotta, just stand there right. and not say hi to him or, or, or shake his hand. Something. Yeah. So you walked over and I, I thought, oh, holy shit, he's going over to talk to him. That's cool. So I was probably six to seven feet behind you, 10 feet behind you. I'll just say 10 feet behind you. I see you shake his hand. I, as I approach listening distance, I hear him say, keep doing what you're doing. Little did I know, you didn't introduce yourself as Tim from the podcast. I had thought you went up and introduced yourself as Tim from the podcast, and his response was, keep doing what you're doing. And that would have been great. Would have been great. In my head, it was great. I thought, oh, my God. Like, this has totally been misread. He does, he, he does like, keep doing what you're doing. So I shake his hand and say, I'm Lance from the podcast. Nice to meet you. And he realized, you saw it in his face. His face changed. And he kind of looked around and he, he gave an incredulous sniff and said, it's getting chilly out here. And I realized that a, <laughs> I realized that there was some, it was a, a bit of tension there. And during the uh, drive back, we were talking about it. And I was like, wow, how does he like, what is he just like you from the podcast? He just doesn't like me, I guess. And then we realized that you never actually introduced yourself as Tim from the podcast. Right. And he didn't recognize us, um, obviously. So I just went up to him and just, just said my thing. <laughs> and uh, and he's he, just assuming that you were somebody just, there right, supporting uh, the group. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and I wasn't trying to fool him. I just didn't want to bring, I don't know, I didn't want to like promote the podcast right there in the middle of the street. I don't know. I didn't think it was worth a mention. Um, but, uh, but I did think he, he thought I was from the podcast when he said, keep doing what you're doing. So I was actually really excited too. And then when you said I'm Lance for the podcast, uh, from the podcast and his face dropped and he said it was getting chilly out there, then I realized, uh, that it was a misunderstanding and, uh, he still doesn't like us. If this was, if this was in a movie that would have, there would have been a track and zoom shot. So it, you know, and that moment I think kind of made us be like, well, what the, what the, what are we doing? Like we're doing this whole podcast and you know, the, the family maybe doesn't even like want us to. And it, and it was really a, like a tough night, honestly. And, and I remember a long morning. I remember pacing a lot that morning because that morning we were going to the VFW to meet Fred again and potentially more family members. And we did meet Julie, um, at the VFW that very next day, the first time we ever met Julie and we saw her from across the room. We actually crossed the entire room to talk to each other, and we didn't really know we were going to talk to each other. So we ended up bumping right into each other, and she basically said that they do support what we do. and Or not basically. She said that. She said mostly the family does really support what we do. They, they get it. The, the word that everybody keeps using is uh, old school. Fred's, Fred still has grudges against um, kids on the playground that, you know, maybe bullied him. Uh, I don't remember a single thing I said to Julie that day because, like you said, we both parties, you and I and her, independently at the same time, decided to go talk to each other. And we ended up like pretty much right in the middle. Mm -hmm. 
and I, I the, think there's a shot in the show, but I they was don't. Just gonna say, yeah, yeah, but they don't cover the audio of it, right? Um, and and I, I mean, I remember being a real like being a really meaningful moment actually because it was a little bit of an emotional uh, totally. seesaw roller coaster, and you know. At, the day after we're like, Oh man, what, what are we doing? Should we be shutting this, the whole thing down? And then, and then Julie says, you know, I, you know, we really, you know, almost all of us like really dig what you're doing. Um, and we, and we support it. And, you know, so at that point we opened a dialogue with Julie. And so we've been talking with her a little bit in the meantime and in the year really since then, uh, so much so Lance that we're going to join with her and do a vigil uh, this year, in 2018, the 14-year anniversary, and we're going to do an online Facebook Live show about Maura Murray. And not about not about the investigation, not about all the B- BS that happens behind the scenes or, or things like that. We're going to talk about Maura. Yeah. This was a, a good segue into the conversation that Aaron has with with Fred. Julie, every time we talk to her about this, she says, um, you know, I'm working on my dad. I'm working on my dad. You know, he'll he'll come around. He's just old school. At this point, he talked to Aaron. I think we're good. You know, as long as he talks to somebody, he has a lot of stuff to say, a lot of important things to say. He needs to get a lot of things off his chest. And he talked to Aaron. Fantastic. Like He got to do that. He doesn't need to talk to us. We're right. we're already deep enough. We don't need to talk to Fred if it's going to stress him out. Right. Fred doesn't need to be stressed out. He got what he needed to say off his chest with Aaron, and you'll hear that soon. It's awesome. With the uh, with the vigil, the fourteen year uh, anniversary, honestly humbling that that we get the 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 opportunity and the honor to work with Julie on this Facebook Live. You can tune in literally from anywhere in the world. And we wanted to take it away from Haverhill, New Hampshire, because the memory of Mora should not be resting in Haverhill, New Hampshire. It should be with her family and with letters that she's written to her mother, letters that Julie has that she'll read, pictures. This should be a remembrance. This shouldn't be a distraction. This shouldn't be something to rile people up. And we and we're gonna do a candlelight thing too, so get your candles ready. We wanna basically light the whole world up. More on this later. Just wanted to introduce you to the idea of this and uh and introduce this Aaron interview, which is which is fascinating. And there will be a couple of clips from Fred in the interview, but if you wanna check out Aaron's interview with Fred, check out her podcast, one hundred and seven degrees. Okay. Welcome back to the podcast, Aaron. It's, Thanks. It's been a long time. Um, you've been very busy in the, in the almost year or whatever, or over a year since we've had you on our podcast. So, uh, your blog and podcast are called 107 degrees blog and Mm -hmm. 107 degrees podcast. And why, why is that? Ah, that's a, that's a good question. No one's really asked me that before. Are you familiar with citizen cope by any chance? He's a singer. No. Okay. Well, it's a song of his and um it's sort of about direction sort of like knowing that you have to move in a certain direction but not really knowing exactly what that is but having to progress anyway like move forward so I was just trying to come up with some something to name the the blog and that seemed appropriate do you mean citizen cope um real name Clarence Greenwood yes okay just checking (laughs) <laughs> I always thought it was the turn by the weathered barn 
um, that it wasn't huh. exactly 90 degrees, but it was really 107 degrees. That was what I, what I, I was sure that that was the answer, by the way. That's a better explanation. <laughs> That's a really good, ex- <laughs> really good one. Thanks. Um, so, uh, so how did the interview with Fred Murray go? Um, it was, it was fascinating. It was really, it's re- weird to say that because I mean, obviously it was very emotional for him, but it was the first time that I had really spoken to him. I know that he was at the event in February, but I didn't really get a chance to talk to him. But it was very informative, and I got to know him better. So I listened to the interview, and my first question that came to mind was, how did you get in touch with Fred? Uh, how did you convince him to do an interview with you? And why did you do this? So they actually got in touch with me. And it was Julie because I, I mean, I'd been in touch with her for a while, but, um, I think it was in like late October. I was actually in new England visiting my family up in Maine and I had been driving. Um, I drove South driving back to DC and I figured I'd stop in Haverhill (laughs) and do a few things. And, uh, Ethan was in Connecticut at a bachelor party or something. So he decided to come up and meet me. And it was when I was on my way there that Julie texted me and said, Hey, can you talk or something like that? And I said, yeah, I'm driving like in an hour. I'll get back to you. And so I was in Haverhill when I talked to her and she, um, she just asked if I'd be interested in interviewing Fred. And, um, I said, obviously, of course, absolutely. (laughs) So they actually reached out to me. There was some stuff that obviously Fred wanted to get off his chest, I guess. Yeah, I think that he wanted to clarify some of the things that um, were in the Oxygen show that were probably, I mean, I think a lot of the stuff Maggie did ask him about and they did go over, but for whatever reason, just wasn't aired. So I think that he he had uh, several things like that. So he was frustrated that some stuff that he wanted in the show got cut out. Yeah, like I think, like one of the things was the five and a half years um, before he spoke to police. Uh, I talked to Maggie and she definitely did ask him about it, but I mean, for whatever reason, it just never, never aired. So to the public, it looks like, um, he, he never spoke to police or he waited five and a half years and then brought lawyers. Right. So I actually have a little update on that. Um, because we were confused why Maggie said that in the show. Right. And, and Mm -hmm. I think she was even confused why, yeah, yeah, why that was in, in the script for her to read. And and she caught a lot of these things and really made sure that they were accurate. Um, but this one, uh, I guess she wasn't sure, but so I, I actually spoke with Eric from, uh, the TV show today about this specific thing. And he said that, and he actually was reading me the transcripts and it was from, the conversation between Chuck West and Jeffrey Strelzin, um, where they were going back and forth and it was a little indistinguishable which one was talking because they got these audio recordings transcribed. And so the person who transcribed it is like speaker seven and speaker eight, but they happened to know that it was one of them was Strelzin. One of them was West. They just didn't know which one, but they were just bouncing back and forth. Like how long was it? Was it, 2009 and so they eventually settled that yeah it was five years later that was the first time that fred sat down with the attorney general uh for a formal interview so i guess what exactly is a formal interview because i know that he had spoken he he spoke to kelly ayotte in the first year 
within the first one or two years. And I'm sure of that because I talked to his attorney, Timothy Irvin. Yeah. And he confirmed that. He said that, um, right, I think it was in 2006 or 2007, they had sat down with Kelly Ayotte, who was the attorney general at the time. Right. So perhaps it's the definition of a formal interview. I think and it I, is. Yeah. Why is it important to decipher this particular number, whether it's two and a half years or two years or five years or five and a half years, and then really splitting hairs on formal versus not formal? Um, why is this important? Well, it's, it's, to me, it's not important. I, I think it's important to Mr. Murray because he doesn't want it out there. He doesn't want some perception, and I, I don't mean to speak for him. I don't speak for him. But I think my impression was that he doesn't want the, the perception of him to be that he was trying to dodge police or avoid police when he was, I think, actively sort of attacking police. Yeah. I think that, that was pretty – I think that's pretty clear. Um, I agree. When I, people I look at the case that I mean, they, there's news clips, there's – uh, requests that he's that that's actually like documented. Um, I don't know. I just I I hear I hear all of this like really the and I get it. You know this the TV show has information that was put out there. Some some things might not be accurate, but I'm just kind of I guess balancing what the relevance and importance of certain things are when there's a whole backlog of of information that proves that. Fred Murray is not dodging the police or law enforcement. Sure. But then you could turn around and say, then, well, why say it? Why even make that statement that he didn't talk to police for five and a half years? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, th yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it was asked of, of those guys in the room and that was the answer they came up with. I, it, it might have not, might have been the kind of thing where they didn't want, like they didn't ask him to come in and sit down for a formal interview with investigators you know and it was all just like kind of off the cuff stuff with investigators and even kelly ayotte or maybe those guys just got it wrong you know but yeah I, I can see where it would be frustrating for mr murray um obviously and i get your point because why why put it out there putting it out there at the top just kind of makes it seem like you're saying this guy could be guilty of something yeah i mean i think that it was said in the context of sort of looking at fred as a I think suspect is a strong word, but as hiding something. And and so I can understand the frustration there. Yeah. Plus, I, I think that, um, I mean, he did sit down with Kelly Ayotte, and that was in the context of him suing the state of New Hampshire. So it was from everything that, like, I can put together, it seems more likely that it was during the the civil lawsuit where he was actually like going after the state, not the other way around. That's the only lawyer that I know that he um, he had represent him during this case was was Timothy Urban. Yeah. So it, it's like they say it like it's like defense lawyer, like he brought defense attorneys, and it just seems inherently sort of guilty. Yeah. You know. So. So maybe I guess that was maybe that was what Chuck and and Chuck West and Jeff Strelzen meant um because when you, when fred met with kelly ayotte it was regard in regards to his civil suit and not so much the investigation i suppose i don't know i'm just trying to figure he, out how these wires got crossed yeah i don't i mean i don't know how the wires got crossed <laughs> but i but i know i know that when he talked to uh kelly ayotte it was in the context of um the civil 
to the lawsuit. Okay. So, um, so yeah, to turn that around and make it seem like he's the one that's hiding something when he was going after the state that he believed was hiding something, I could absolutely see why that could be frustrating and why he wouldn't want that to be able to just be repeated constantly or used against him in any way. I don't even think that the police thought he was a suspect. I just think maybe formally they didn't ask him to sit down for a long time. Well, you know? yeah. I mean, the other thing is, it, I think the, the way that it was stated was that he didn't sit down with homicide detectives. Moore's case isn't a homicide case. It's a missing persons case. So it's not, why would he sit down with homicide detectives? Right. I was just going to say that. Um, you have to look at the, 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 the time frame of it. You know, why, why would he? Why would he be requested to? Or why, why would there be a formal interview? Why would he, when we say it's uh, sort of ridiculous to consider Fred as a suspect back then, what are they actually considering him, him a suspect of? When you release the episode and, and you listen to it, were you happy with the results of it? Yeah. I, yeah. I don't think I would have put it out if I wasn't happy with it. But um, do you mean, was I happy with what, what exactly? Like, I guess, were you happy with the answers that Fred gave you? And were you satisfied with um, putting it out there and having the people who listened to it, uh, you know, get answers from Fred? In, in terms of Fred answering the questions, he he answered every single question that I had. And I didn't have to ask because I had sent him them previously. And so he had them all and he just answered. He was very candid with, uh, with a lot of the things he spoke about. He kind of had a, had a, uh, DGAF, uh, kind of attitude. Um, I think during, during this, uh, interview. Um, and I was surprised that, that he was like throwing out suspects names and things like that. So I'd, I'd like to dig into that a little bit. Um, because some of these people like, you know, th this was the first we heard that the Murray, like inside the Murray family, like th there was some, there was some mm -hmm. suspicion of Tim Carpenter, for example, right. Even mm -hmm. still to this day, uh, based on that interview with Fred, he still has suspicion of his ex son-in-law. Yeah. That was pretty shocking to me too. When I heard it. Yeah. That's kind of um, a bombshell, I think. Yeah. I will say that, um, Sarah in one of the, uh, and actually in probably all of the groups, um, she did send me something recently about Jeremy Rathbun and how he and his wife had actually been indicted for perjury mm -hmm. for uh, lying under oath in 2014. So I need to foil those records, but um, that is something to consider, I think. I think they deny that. So, uh, but but what we're talking about here is uh, Tim Carpenter, who is uh, mm. Kathleen, who is Maura's sister. Tim Carpenter was married to Kathleen at the time Maura went missing, and uh, Fred sort of said on on your podcast that uh, that he's not even sure that that Tim Carpenter is is clear of suspicion in his mind. And so Fred started talking about this sighting from a man named Jeremy Rathbun, um, who we we've heard this this sighting from, um, and he said he swears that he saw Tim um, and his red truck and dr driving kind of suspiciously, the smell of death in the truck. Uh, I don't know, and then and then you throw in this this charge of perjury uh, at one point, and so it makes it a little more complicated. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't want to dismiss it because I think he should be looked at. Tim should be looked at. But at the same time, if you if you know right away that this is the guy, why do you wait several months to tell Mr. Murray? Like that that sort of struck me as a bit odd. The other thing is, why does he know? He, he's at least according to Fred Murray, he says that he knows what decaying bodies smell like. Why? <laughs> that was also a little surprising and a little bit alarming. So that, that leads me to a question. Um, do you think this might be too much of uh kicking of the hornet's nest? So I'm, I'm wondering it does, it, it, did it go through your head that this might be too much of uh, a spotlight on Fred who is in his seventies, who's been through a lot of crap, um, who is, you know, trying to trying to maintain some sort of like semblance with his surroundings in terms of how to keep it together with his daughter still being missing did it cross your mind that this might be too much for him i mean if these people hear their names if or is he just like tim said he just has that i don't give a fuck attitude now my interpretation was that he has the sort of i don't give a fuck attitude <laughs> anymore. Like he, he, all he wants is for these people to be investigated. And one of the things that was pretty apparent is that the police haven't really communicated with him very well about whether or not these people have been, been investigated. It's very possible that they have been. And I don't, I don't see, I, there could be a reason, but I don't see the harm in just telling him, telling him that, telling him who has an alibi, who doesn't, or maybe not who doesn't, but who does at least like excluding, certain suspects and but he has not been given any information about these people so i think the reason he's throwing out all these names is because he wants the public to know like these are possible um or at least people that have been brought to his attention over the years that should be investigated that need to be looked at and he's not sure if it's happened so i think it was more that do, do you know what answers he's specifically given by the police when he asks them? Do, does, do, do they say, we can't tell you? Or do they say, we looked at them and they're clear? I think that what they say is, we looked at them. Which is incredibly ambiguous. It seems like they've given more information to Maggie and Art than they have to, to Mr. Murray. Probably Art's law enforcement uh you know, his history of law enforcement, they trust him in that, in that way. Uh, I suppose, you know, even though mm -hmm. he's a civilian now, but Fred, you know, is a civilian. And once you tell someone something, you lose the information, you lose the power of not telling that person, that person can tell anybody. I mean, we, we've, you know, run into kind of issues like that, uh, playing the information game who you can tell. And, you know, as you know, it, it gets complicated. Mm -hmm. See, I don't, I don't think that there's much, um, I don't want to say blame, but I don't think that there's too much to read into the the father of a, of a missing woman getting a response like that from law enforcement. We looked into them. I mean, the last thing that law enforcement would want is to give somebody like possibly an emotional father, an emotional parent information that could lead them to do something that they shouldn't be doing the very extreme is him confronting the people that he's talking about. 
that's the that's the most extreme. He could also go on a podcast and start talking about it. That's you know somewhere not as extreme. But right now they have civilians that have information about a case. Then they might start affecting what happens. They might start influencing people to give false you know testimonies. It I I. When we started this, we were really critical of the law enforcement, but now it's I I just feel like I feel like if law enforcement listened to his interview, they they're probably thinking like, "Oh my god, like oh, like what if they were that close to to or Carpenter or one of those one of those people." And and this this somehow blows up. Well, a couple of things. One, how would it blow up? Like what? Like what's the logical extension of what you're you're I, thinking? Like somebody hears the name and then what happens? I don't know. I mean, if I, it, I'm I'm just I'm talking about it from if if there's a, if there's a moment where something has to has to occur on law enforcement's end, and this person doesn't know that it is about to happen to them. If law enforcement has something and they're ready to they're ready to, to, you know, pull a search warrant or they're ready to do something. And this person hears that this has happened and they, for whatever reason, the search warrant was going to be pulled for. They, they destroy that. If, you know, if there was something that was leading them to a property, if there was something there and they hear this and then, and, and then they, they, they pull whatever was supposed to be discovered. I mean, I think I understand the theoretical danger that you're, you're talking about. At the same time, it's been 14 years. Like, I know that the case, I mean, I know that the show has reinvigorated um, a certain energy, but at the same time, I, I I have thought about this because obviously I was the one to put it out, but I had a hard time thinking or believing that the costs outweighed the benefits. If that makes sense. I know that not every not everyone can be guilty, which means that some of the people that you mentioned are innocent. In fact, most of them, maybe even all of them. And so I did my best to, to bleep the people that weren't overtly obvious, but it's been 14 years. I don't think that they're that close. I don't. Because of the time, because of how long it's taken. Because of how long it's taken. I mean, I guess like you get into the legal element in 2007, they said the attorney general said that he had a 75% chance of prosecution on case, which is unheard of to say under oath and nothing for another 10 years. So 75% is not a hundred percent. There's still 25%. Well, 75% that's a prosecution. That, yeah. So that that's like implying that there will be an indictment. So that that's a pretty it's a pretty um, confident number. It's probably as far as an attorney general is willing to go with uh, yes. with a percentage. I'd be willing to bet. Um, I wonder what the hell he was talking about when he said that. I've, we've we've talked about this for years, literally trying to figure this out. Did Fred give any insight on that? He didn't know. He didn't know. Yeah. The names that you guys kind of mentioned, um, this uh, this concrete guy that, uh, that that Fred started talking about, and you bleeped, and uh, Lance just mentioned his name. 
he's he's a, a name, right? And and his name's been popping up a lot lately online, especially I've noticed. So this is a person that we heard about like two, almost three years ago, probably now, and it was kind of whispered. It was like, and uh, and it's like, wow. Well, we you know we kept we kept that in our pocket for a long time. Now everyone's talking about him online. Fred talks about him. You know, I don't know the guy. We have no, no, but by, by one account that we know of, he's supposed to be a great guy. But then on another hand that we heard that may be a local rumor, he made a really awful joke at a barbecue about how he had, had something to do with this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's the knowledge that I have too. He was sort of bragging around town, according to Fred, that he had had something to do with it. So I hate to blame him, sort of, but if you if you make those kinds of statements, I can't expect that people aren't gonna misinterpret or, you know, start to look at you differently. Right. I only know of one incident where he's he's mentioned that. What, what was the bragging around town? Is there more incidents that? No, that's just a, a direct quote from Mr. Murray. He said that he was bragging around town. So I don't oh. know about the specific incidents. Sounds like the same incident, I think, that uh, that we heard of. It seems similar to Rick Forcier, actually. And it makes you start to wonder, are people just... This is what people do? Lumping lumping all these people in, and if it's Rick Forcier, or if it's the concrete guy, all of a sudden Rick Forcier becomes the concrete guy. It's like the game of telephone. It's like, you know... I mean, who knows? Like the Westmans probably said something like they had, you know, something to do with it. That'll be the thing next year, you know, when someone gets a exclusive with Faith Westman. Um, and then, you know, then we can clear that up. It's like this big, like, crockpot of <laughs> of stories and people and it just keeps like simmering. I mean, I want I really wonder like the concrete rumors, right? I'll use air quotes. The concrete rumors, I don't know what they are. Uh rumors of what, but we've heard about them. You've heard about them for years. The whole community has heard about them for literally fucking a decade or more. Mm -hmm. Um and so a lot of them lead back to this guy. Some of them don't necessarily. Uh we just had on the old owners of the A-frame who were talking about a very suspicious concrete slab that was mm -hmm on their property that wasn't officially supposed to be on that property um, right. per the records office of the town. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, it's like, what, what is that? Is that just some, some stupid local rumor that's just total bullshit or is there some truth to these things? Well, the concrete uh, rumor, I think, it, I think it was started by a psychic. Hmm. Where, where did that, where uh, did you hear that? One of the things that Mr. Murray said was that uh, early on, they had a psychic come up from Connecticut, who I, I think is in the at least the law enforcement world, perhaps more um, credible than others. And and she seemed to think that concrete was somehow involved. That's a stretch. Now, law enforcement. When when we asked them in uh in our episode 27 i think it was and mm -hmm. we we have a list of questions and they uh they responded to them we asked them about concrete it said uh there are reports that there were areas of freshly laid concrete near the crash site in the days following the crash has this been reported to police and have any searches been conducted of these areas and their official answer was we are unaware of any such reports and there would be some difficult 
to pouring concrete in February. However, mm-hmm. we will investigate this based upon your assertion. Yep. Um, so, so they're, they're basically saying it's not a credible rumor or theory. Well, but, which aspect? But the how, concrete aspect or yeah, I get. Well, I guess it's both, right? Like, how could they have? How could they have not heard those rumors, and we all did? Well, um, that's a very good question because I know John Healy heard of those rumors, and I know <laughs> that uh, I believe that some searches were done with dogs in certain areas. So that is, I, I don't know how the police couldn't have heard about that, but that could speak to why Mr. Murray wants to get this information out there. If yeah. if he, he if, if they should have heard about it, if Healy knew about it, if Healy was communicating with the state police, then I can com- can sort of understand why he might be a little frustrated that, you know, something that they actually looked into wasn't even known by the state police, according to them. Now, this is the same John Healy that was part of the League of Investigators that um, collected the carpet sample from the A-frame house, right? Yes, which we just recently learned that uh, Healy wasn't actually part of the group that collected it. He was part of the League of Investigators, but he didn't directly collect it. Correct. So that was that was something that was out there as well, that John Healy collected this carpet sample, and we just recently found out that he didn't. Yeah, he didn't. He did have um, the carpet sample in his control, though, afterwards. So they collected it, and he was in charge of the directing whoever stored it, stored it in like the proper sort of storage container or whatever. So he did have control of it afterwards. And I get would assume that's because he was like the lead investigator on that. To clarify, John Healy's lead investigator team collected the carpet sample, mm-hmm. gave it to the police. Uh, they did not give it to the police right away, no. They gave it to John Healy. Yes. And he put it in some sort of like, like hermetically sealed container. I don't know if it was. It, I'm well, pretty sure container. it wasn't him uh, directly who did that, but he he had it stored properly in like the proper container or um, conditions, and then and and it was in his control. And then it was eventually the state police got it, but years later. That's very interesting. Yeah, it was one of the things that Mr. Murray was pretty upset about because he assumed that it would just. Like he would have just handed it over to the police, but he had to actually follow up with him and um, found out that it was never handed over. And so I think he called Strelzen and the state police went and got it or something like that. But this is a this is sort of proving a point of for years, people have been thinking that the police just aren't communicating. And now we find out that John Healy had this carpet sample for a long time, and Fred is upset when he finally realizes, what have you been doing with this carpet sample for so long? Oh, oh, you don't even have it, law enforcement. John Healy has this. Like everyone everyone's saying, Well, what happened? The cops never said it. What you know, why won't why won't they tell Fred if it's not bloodstains from from his daughter? Like they didn't even get it in time, and by the time they got it, they were probably thinking, "What what use is it now?" Like it's so it, the chain of command, like the chain of custody. I mean, they don't know what the chain of custody is after years. Yeah, I, I don't know how it would work with a former investigator. I think it would be like they would probably see that as a little bit more credible, like the chain of custody. But still, yes. Oh sure, but the the over the overall uh, point is that. 
for years we've been we've been criticizing the police because they don't communicate and then we find out that a crucial piece of evidence was never delivered to the police for years yeah so when's the next thing going to come out <laughs> <laughs> i think i think with the police stuff is is a little bit of column a a little bit of column b i think sometimes we're too hard on them and sometimes i think we're probably not hard enough yeah i agree I, yeah i think that's called fair <laughs> <laughs> now uh you guys were talking about the loon three um which is uh what what is kind of known known it had it became known as the loon three after the tv show um there was some speculation that there was these these brothers these two brothers and this other person who worked at loon mountain and they would have been driving down 112 that night around that time because they would have been driving to loon mountain to work and none of them showed up to work that night is the the story um and we found out based on what fred said on your podcast that it wasn't the two groups of brothers that we and really everyone that that i had talked to about it seem to think that it was either the right. Glenn brothers or the Aldrich brothers. And it turns out that he says it's neither of them. Mm -hmm. So that was, yeah. that was, that was kind of a big one too. Uh, well, yeah. What the heck, what do we make of that? I don't know. I mean, it was surprising to me. Um, I, I do question where this rumor originated and I was reading the SoCo article again recently and um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. It's the one where Susan Champy is mentioned, and she actually worked at Loon Mountain. And one of the things that she said was that her um, her relief hadn't arrived yet, so she left work late. And I have to wonder if like this entire thing might have come from her, because if her whoever was supposed to take over for her never arrived at work, she eventually left and drove past the scene. Is she putting these things together in her head? But the Loon 3 is something that the police have looked into as well, right? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I have how How could I know? How We don't even know who these people are. I know. So how can we find out who, who these people are? Could ask a manager at Loon Mountain. Okay. I mean, that's, that's one way. We could try to find the origin of the rumor, which is what I'm trying to do. I think it could be Susan Champy. Yeah. That seems like the most logical to me. Susan Champy might have perpetrated or the rumor might have originated from her. And then the rumor perpetrated with uh, the the community and imaginations possibly took over. Or do you think that she continued this story do you think that this is malicious no absolutely not okay i don't think that like any of the rumors are necessarily malicious it's it's just people overhearing and talking and it's just what people do people like to talk so i i don't think that it's malevolent in any way gotcha cool yeah i just wanted to clear that up what's your feelings when you ask fred a question and he claims certain things were done with the TV show for quote unquote ratings. Like when he's asked uh, tough questions by Maggie, uh, the way they cut the show together to make it more dramatic, the, the psychic, what, what's your, it's, it's mostly an opinion question that I'm posing to you. I mean, do they do that? Do they cut things? Is there creative editing? Yes, absolutely. Do I agree with him on every instance of where there was creative editing. No, I, I think, I mean, I was pretty 
open about that. I, I don't think that Maggie asked him the question about sexual abuse for ratings. I think it was something that she had to ask because it was out there. But I completely understand where he's coming from. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've never been asked or accused of something like that on national television. So I, I really don't know how it feels, but I can imagine it's not very good. Well, I think he did a really good job at uh, clearing up that he was not involved with any sort of abuse. And um, it never struck me that this was an accusation, just something that was out there that needed to be addressed directly by him. Yeah. And, and so I think, I mean, his response was more emotional and mine's more rational. But that that's exactly what you would expect, right? I, I can't I can't fault him for it. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, he seemed to get a little annoyed um, at Maggie, and he seemed to still be a little annoyed at Maggie um, about it. And and what can you do? I guess it's uh, it's it was her job to to do that to ask tough questions, and it was it it's his his life is is being the father of a missing person. I don't blame Maggie at all. Yeah. Do I do I blame other people? Maybe. Um, why that rumor was even out there? Why the question had to be asked? Yeah, I think there's some um, some blame to go around, but it's not Maggie's fault. Well, what's your impression when Fred said that Art could have done more? Um, I think that he was perhaps hoping that they would get more into doing some of the investigation with particular suspects and sort of like almost, I think because Art has a law enforcement background, I think he was hoping that he could take on some of the law enforcement uh, roles maybe in an investigation and look more into like Tim Carpenter and some of these other people. But I mean, the show and for what I think are obvious reasons can't, necessarily do that and I, I think that's what he was getting at that's what he was hoping for but it's not really what the direction that the show is going I think sort of um, not the direction of the show but the direction of the investigation uh, still has art working with law enforcement today yeah so I just I just want to make sure that people who are listening don't think that art just dropped it once the show was over and moved on to his other commitments at CNN um, there's still multiple emails that happen every single day oh, that, yeah. that go back and forth between tips coming in, Art receiving them, Art sending them to Chuck West, Maggie getting them, us getting them, sending them to Art. There's a lot that's going on. And I just wanted to you know, make sure anybody who's listening doesn't think, again, that you know they just cashed their checks and walked away. No, I mean, Art's... Art's pretty incredible. Every time I've emailed him, he's gone back to me in like within five minutes. He's and and Maggie, like they're both pretty uh, responsive, yeah, and involved and interested. Definitely. Yeah, I'm not sure how Art does it. When when you do email him, he gets back to you right away, and it almost is it 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 seems like he didn't he shouldn't have had that short period of time to write the response that he wrote. <laughs> Like I, I, it would take me like two and a half hours to write a response that he would write in like in like forty five seconds. One time, Lance uh, on a, on a reply all, Lance uh, copied his signature and put it underneath Lance's signature, and it said like U.S. Marshal retired, CNN <laughs> and Art did did not respond. No, no reaction. No, no reaction. No response on that one. <laughs> I I learned pretty quickly the um. 
the tightrope that you walk when you're joking around with normal people and then when you're joking around with a former U.S. Marshal. We'll, we'll, we'll stick to uh, Celtics and Patriot talk. <laughs> what was your impression of Maggie? Because you saw her on the TV show. Um, I think you met her briefly before uh, during the 13-year uh, um, anniversary but I don't know if you actually spoke to her uh, when you when you were emailing with her about the interview. Um, what's your impression been of her? Pretty great. Like I have, I think she's incredibly professional, incredibly intelligent. She responded to like, I really don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a journalist, so when I have to ask her these things, when I have to fact check, um, it's it's not the most comfortable thing. But she was completely cool about everything that I asked her. I told her that the sexual abuse question came up and um, she was totally fine with it. So I have nothing but good things to say. Lance was hoping you said something really bad. (laughs) I was hoping to to stir the crock pot. (laughs) I can say something catty if you want. (laughs) No. I think she's... No, she's great, yeah. This is one that is, uh, again, your opinion. Since the show, uh, since your interview with Fred, do you think that there has been more of an angry response to this or more of a uh, moving closer to to Mora, moving closer to who she was uh, and actually, you know, stripping away all, all that noise? Or do, you, or do you think there or do you think there's been a different type of anger that's been building. Hmm. Um, I guess I'd say in terms of like the responses that I've gotten for that episode, there are a few people that have been angry about it. There's always a few people that are angry about things, but for the most part, it's been overwhelmingly positive. Does it get us closer to what happened tomorrow? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think of the things that were mentioned in that episode, one, like the squaw walk, I think was pretty well put to rest what his, what he meant by that and how it was sort of perhaps misinterpreted. I also heard about from the cops. They they started on this early and, and stuck with it. And it was their mantra. She went into the woods, walked into the woods. I thought, no, she didn't walk into the woods. Because if she walked into the woods, there would be footprints because there were two feet of snow. Plus the dog trail they did made it seem pretty unlikely that she walked into the woods. That's true. And we didn't know that at the time, you know. But I was right there and talked to the guy, Bogatis, that was directing it, right in the middle of it, right at their their headquarters, uh, where they were parked on the side of the road. It's a big clearing. All of the searches start there. That was headquarters for the search. And it was right down where 112, just right between where the two uh, 116s, one south and one north, uh, branch off 112. There's a big clearing with a path at the end of it into the woods. They were all parked there. That's where I was parked because I was searching in the area myself. I didn't know they were there. And there's Bogatis, and I talked to him, and he described what they were doing from way back, way up to the height of land, he called it. And that's the search they did. 12 or 13 miles, whatever it was. But um, they came up with nothing there, and uh, I was really glad 
to see that last episode, or whatever episode it was, when Bogata said there was no chance she went in the woods, because that was what they were hanging their hat on. And the reason for it, it kept coming back and back and back, is the old squaw walk. The old squaw walk is the second half of the statement that I made. You never, ever hear the first half. They were talking to me about, well, she must have walked into the woods. It, 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 it happens, Fred, and nobody understands why, and it's a combination of circumstances, blah, blah, blah. She didn't walk into the woods. She would never do it. That's not the type of personality she has. Now, I'm not even going to look. There was no sense because she absolutely did not do that. And then they said, well, what she could have. She could have. Uh, did she ever discuss it or something? No, she never discussed anything like that. It's just... It's a non-factor. And uh, she said, well, if she did, what would she do? I said, she didn't. Where would she go? She didn't. She did not do that. And I was getting irritated with them. I said, she never talked about suicide. Uh, it's never been a, a topic of conversation. But then, I don't know exactly why I mentioned this. I said, well, we saw a movie once. I think it was called Cheyenne Autumn. And it was tough on... Uh, on the Indians, the winter came, and they filed into the woods. You know, they all, the whole tribe. And uh, the real old squaws are real old, old people. When they're at the end of the line, they knew there were going to be a drag on the column. They would just get last, and they'd just drop off the end and die in the snow in the woods when it was their time, you know. And uh, that was the old squaw walk. I said, but she didn't do that. that. That did not happen. That's the only time that the term suicide came up. And uh, that that was the context of it. So all I've heard ever since is the old squaw walk. So you know. did they, sorry to interrupt, but did yeah. they push you? Yeah. Sort of? Yes. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yes. They kept after me. Uh, suicide was the thing. Because if, if a bad guy grabbed her, <laughs> they got some explaining to do. They got a, they got a case on their hands. You know, but uh, which is what happened. But if she walked into the woods and committed suicide, what, what are we going to do about that, Mr. Murray? We can't help that, you know. We'll try to find her for you, but uh, we can't stop people from doing that. And no responsibility. Plus, the background, the setting is there's no crime in New Hampshire because it is, it's horrible for business. And the whole economy up there is uh, dependent on tourism, on three seasons. You know, and you cannot mess that up. And you never hear of major crime in New Hampshire. Maybe since this, uh, but not before that. It was everything was brushed under the rug. You know, they come up here and they, they got lost in the woods or they committed suicide in the woods. All these uh, missing people, and there were a ton of missing people. Uh, a lot of women, mm -hmm. you know. Of course. And, and that's, that's what it is, you know. And... Uh, you really get nowhere talking to them. They, they've got their mind made up on that, and that's their way out. That was the context. That was the setting. That's what I've had to deal with the whole time. That's the background, and that's the beauty of Bogatis finally coming out in that program. That is probably the major event of, of the oxygen program, is the debunking of the um, suicide theory, the walk into the woods theory. It did not happen. It's not her personality. Way too tough should fight right to the bloody end. She would run and fight. That's what Mara would do. It was nice to see or to hear uh, Fred talk about how little stock he and the rest of the Murrays uh, mm -hmm. put in 
the idea that Mora may have been suicidal, uh, at least at this point, you know, and it was actually kind of heartwarming to hear he's, him say, you know, she was too tough for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I mean, part of it was just his, he, he has things that he wants to say and he didn't get to say them on the show. So where is he going to have that outlet to do it? So I, I think that was part of it. Um, that's sort of a neutral doesn't move us forward or backward. It's just, he had things that he wanted to say, but what I'm sort of inferring from your question is that there's a concern about like some animosity that could be, um, sort of could be an outcome of the episode or is that, is that sort of what you're getting at? Like the vitriol against particular, like the oxygen show or something. Not really, uh, not really animosity, just uh, maybe, maybe I feel like a lot of people just have this built up anger when it comes to the case. And when, when the, the, the theories are being dismissed, then they, then they turn to the show and they say, well, the show, you know, did this and did this and did this and it's wrong and it's wrong and it's making this person look like this. And I, you know, is that something that you have the same opinion on? And are you concerned that they would look at your interview and start picking that apart? But you said the response you got was overwhelmingly positive. I don't know. I I tried to make it clear that it was like the fact that he had things that he wanted to clarify was not an overall sort of, um, it wasn't an overall comment about the show. It was just, there were specific things that he wanted to clarify. Again, I don't want to speak for him, but I think, that he he made it clear multiple times and he will in the next episode that he's overwhelmingly grateful for things that the show did like getting the police to talk like there's no way that that would have happened otherwise so um so yeah i i didn't feel bad about it in that sense to your point about there are people that are angry about particular things that the sh- oxygen show didn't or didn't do i mean i think there are still questions that they for example the timeline of the suv and when when it came to the scene and when witness a passed like that is still a huge question for me and it's it's not the job of the show to answer it like that wasn't their goal. Their goal was to broaden the base of people that are interested. It was to get out the word. It was not to solve the case, but, um, but I can understand why people may still look at that and have questions and think that, you know, it is perhaps a mistake to gloss over too easily because what, especially since it's been a question for so long, and I can't make it work. I can't make the timeline work. I can't make the order of operations of events that we know that occurred work so that the SUV shows up and Witness A shows up after that and she gets to the Beaver Pond by 752. I can't make it work. So I, I think people should be angry. I think that they should demand answers from police. I don't think that, I mean, I think now I'm going on like a, tangent tirade but um you know it's it's been said 
like multiple times that the police don't owe us anything. I completely disagree with that. Of course the police owe us information. They might not know, owe us information about the criminal investigation that they're conducting, but they absolutely owe us information about their conduct and about their actions that night, particularly if they're making the claim that there was no evidence of foul play and no evidence that it was even a crime. Um, yes, I think that all, like they should absolutely explain what they did. And John Monaghan's uh, narrative statement, his more detailed report that he was forced to write still hasn't been released. Why? And, and I think that that's, people should absolutely demand those answers. What is it about the timeline that, that you see as the definitive time that you say this can't work? I've tried to plug in times that Smith could arrive at every, at 7.31, 7.32, 7.33. And there's always a reason why that's impossible. If we assume that first, number one, Faith Westman calls 911, then Smith is dispatched. Then Atwood shows up and talks to Mora. Then he leaves. Then somehow Mora disappears. Then he calls 911. Then the SUV shows up. Then Witness A shows up. Those are seven events, I think, that, <laughs> that have to occur between 729 and 746. And I cannot come up with one time that the SUV can show up and witness A can pass it that doesn't violate that order of operation of events. So if the latest possible that I, I can foresee Smith showing up at 739, but Butch Atwood, according to Helena Dwyer Murray, called 911 at 738. So how does that work? How, how does, why does he call 911 if the police are already there? Not to mention that he had already, he stated later that the police didn't show up until seven to nine minutes after he called 911, which would correspond exactly to the time in the official record, which is 745 or 746, depending if you're looking at the accident report or the police dispatch log. I, I think that the other thing is in the SoCo article, it says that um, Smith was at the Haver Police Department when he was dispatched. It's a 17 minute drive. If we're going to say that he showed up at 7.35 or whatever, how do you make that journey? How do you get from point A to point B and take the little loop around Cemetery Lane and make it there by 7.35? It's impossible. So, I mean, all the evidence points to him arriving at 7.45 or 7.46. So to say that he arrived at 7.37 or whatever they're trying to say really strains credulity like i just i can't i can't make it work yeah, what did art tell you about this um i so i <laughs> this is like one of the times when i've emailed art and i just feel like the kid in the back seat like saying like but why <laughs> why <laughs> over and over again but he he didn't have an answer he does not he doesn't have an answer his answer is look at the big picture and but the reality is that more disappeared within those 19 minutes. Like that is the answer. So it's sort of, I, I can't reconcile. I can't like 
I can't look away from that because that, that is the answer. And so we, to the extent that there's something that isn't lining up, of course that should be scrutinized. And of course should, people should want more information. There must have been something in that night, like right right in there. Like like as you said, Monaghan's report hasn't been yeah. like, like uh, seen publicly. Like there has to have been something that happened there that is being kept quiet, I think. Um, for for the for the not investigation, but for the prosecution is my bet. You know, I don't know what the hell that is, but the, there has to be something there. You're you're right. You're right. There's something funky. Do you think it's Jeff Williams showing up in? No, you know, I, I mean, don't. no. And I don't think that like questioning the timeline should be conflated with any sort of insinuation or. I don't know, incriminating notions about Jeff Williams because there's right, right. literally no evidence to suggest that he was there. Or incriminating evidence towards anybody because I right right now, it, it really feels to me like there's, this is sort of the next step with how the, the approach is going to need to be... Um, need to be taken with the with the case right i mean you you just gave a very good detailed breakdown of of the possibilities of of when and why but we don't know the how we don't know the who so we should like we said before like column a column b like there you're, you're there's a problem with the the when and the how but to to say anything more like you know, well, maybe Rick Forcier could have got her here. Like that's where we get into into a sticky situation because now we're now we're saying these what ifs. I I, I agree with you. If we find some sort of document, something that somebody there's some piece out there that puts that timeline together and makes it work, and that's the key to it. I can think of one document. <laughs> I don't know if we want to get into this, but. Sure. What, what document? I mean, there, the Littleton dispatch log shows that an officer was on his way somewhere at 7.28 p.m. Mm. And so, I mean, that, that is one possibility. And obviously I'm talking about Bruce McKay, but forget the fact that he's a police officer. Just forget that for a second. He's just, he's just a guy that we know is driving around and we know has some domestic abuse issues. He's had at least one restraining order. Has some tendency toward mild sadism. <laughs> has some issues with escalating to dangerous situations. And then add pretty strong circumstantial evidence that he's on his way in Mara's direction. According to the logs, he was dispatched with the three other officers, right? Correct. And according to the logs, he did not arrive. There was no arrival time? Correct. Yes, and I went to the Littleton Police Department, and I made sure that he did not arrive at that incident, and he did not. There's no record of him at that incident. So he was dispatched, and he cleared it at 728. So he was going somewhere. What does is, what is cleared it mean? It means that he was no longer, he was, was not going to that incident anymore he was going somewhere else for whatever reason now he could have been stopping for gas he could have been doing anything but we don't know where he was going at that particular time at 728 the only other incident that he could have been going to if it was if he cleared it for a work-related reason was mara's accident that's it there's nothing else in the log 
So we have at least circumstantial evidence that this person is perhaps headed in her direction and he is not the best person ever. And then give him the legal ability to compel someone to get in his car against their will. And problems with the timeline and problems with police's statements about the timeline. And I think that there's a good reason to question what he was doing. I mean, if not for the fact that he was a police officer, he would be at the top of the list of suspects. It's only because he's a cop that he's not looked at like that, in my opinion. And if anybody's curious, you can check out the uh, YouTube videos of McKay's um, dashboard camera during some of his arrests. And uh, it's like you said, I, I don't even I didn't even realize that mild sadism was a thing, but <laughs> I just made that up. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But I he 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 does appear to enjoy it when situations escalate. And that's just the appearance that and the impression that I get when I watch his dashboard cam videos. Um, but what you did there was you dissected the timeline. You looked at documents that had a timestamp on it. And there's a discrepancy or there's an omission of, of him not arriving at the scene, but clearing it. And then taking his background into account. So... That's what you did there. Also, in that narrative report, it it makes clear that like they're they're tr- they're working they're trying to figure out like who's going to go to this incident, and somebody says something about covering a town and asking for another officer to be called out, and then another officer is dispatched at the exact same time that McKay clears it. So somebody was sent in his place. What is the future of 107 Degrees podcast and blog hold? <laughs> um. I don't, well, I'll keep, I'll keep the blog up for sure. I, for the podcast, I only wanted it to be like six episodes or oh, so. Oh, no, like no, you got, you got to do like 65, 70. <laughs> yeah, you can't, I mean. Can't stop. Tim, I don't see it going past like 12 or 13. Oh, that sounds like a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I, Aaron, I think you can do at least 75. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know, so. We'll see. I'll, I'll keep it going until it's no longer relevant, I guess. And we have part two of your interview with Fred coming out. Uh, do you have a, a date in mind for that? Hopefully in the next week and a half or so.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.